Well, this evening, uh, all eyes are turned towards uh, Rosh Hashanah, Haba Aleinu Latova, just a few days away. And as we know, this year is uh, distinct in the sense that Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos. And when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, <coughs> so we don't have a shofar. And I'd like to take a look at some of the background to that idea, both from uh, the halacha as well as uh, a drop of history, and uh, also thematically as well. So where does it begin? The Mishnah informs us in Maseches Rosh Hashanah that when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, Bamikdash Hayutokin. In the Mikdash, they would blow the shofar. Where is the Mikdash? Presumably, Beis HaMikdash. So in the Beis HaMikdash, they would blow the shofar. Avalopa Medina. But beyond that, beyond the environs of the Beis HaMikdash, in the broader uh, areas, anywhere outside the Beis HaMikdash, they would not blow the shofar. And for us, that's basically everywhere, as far as we know, uh, not to blow on Shabbos. The question is, why not? And as is quite well known, the Gemara actually goes through a couple of stages before it reaches its conclusion. Initially, the Gemara considers that the basis for not blowing the shofar when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos is actually based on Torah psukim, that is to say, based on uh, expounding verses in the Torah. How so? Because we're actually told two things about Rosh Hashanah, two seemingly conflicting things. On the one hand, <coughs> in Parshas Emor, Rosh Hashanah is called Zichron Trua. Zichron Trua means a remembrance of Trua. Sounds like we remember the Trua. The Trua is remembered, but it isn't performed. Elsewhere, in Parshas Pinchas, towards the end of Bamidbar, Rosh Hashanah is referred as Yom Trua, a day of Trua, meaning where it actually happens. <coughs> How are we to make room to make shalom between these two psukim? One says Yom Trua, implying that the shofar actually happens. The other says Zichron Trua, implying that it is recalled, but not actually performed, says the Gemara. The resolution is, it depends what day of the week it is. If it's during the week, then it's Yom Trua. If it's on Shabbos, then it's Zichron Trua. That is the Gemara's initial presentation of the origins or basis of this idea that we don't blow the shofar when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos. However, the Gemara does not stay with that understanding for a couple of reasons, not least of which, says the Gemara, if it's really Torah law not to blow the shofar when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, so why would they do so in the Beis HaMikdash? Last we checked, Beis HaMikdash is also governed by Torah law. So, how can you make an exception? Rather, the Gemara concludes that the suspension of blowing the shofar when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos is derabonon, it's rabbinic in nature. The issue is we're concerned. A person may come to carry, as the Gemara describes it, <coughs> four Amos in the Rosh Hashanah. It's famously known as the Gezerah of Rabbah, uh, he may come to carry 
on Shabbos and therefore to forestall against such a possibility, we don't blow the shofar on Shabbos. That is a big chiddush, and we, we know it from time immemorial. <clears throat> but nonetheless, why would a person forget that it's Shabbos? Why would a person come to carry? If a person is halachically observant, he knows not to carry on Shabbos. Why would he carry the shofar? Well, Rashi says <laughs> the reason why he carried the shofar is because he's so excited to fulfill the mitzvah of shofar. In his excitement, he may forget that it's Shabbos. And I think, <coughs> apart from anything else, that teaches us a thing or two about how excited we should be to perform mitzvahs. We don't wish to violate Shabbos, but we, we worry that a person might even forget what day it is, what day of the week it is, on his way to, to blow the shofar. That's a chiddush. Again, a bit of education as to how to approach mitzvahs with excitement. Others say the basis of the worry that a person may come to carry on Shabbos, I mean, he knows that one can't carry on Shabbos, where would the mistake come from? The mistake may come from an error in judgment. He may think that, true as it is, that one can't carry on Shabbos. However, there's a mitzvah to perform the blowing of shofar. (coughs) And we have a principle, asay, dochalot asay, a positive mitzvah outweighs a negative. And based on that, he may conclude halachically that it's permissible and sanctioned for him to carry on Shabbos for purposes of fulfilling the mitzvah of shofar. Now, it happens to be that's not true because a positive mitzvah does not outweigh a mitzvah with the severity, a negative prohibition with the severity of Shabbos. So this person has he has a halachic concept in his mind. He doesn't know its parameters. He's liable to make a mistake. A little knowledge is dangerous. That's really what's, what's happening here. Very often, uh, people who know a thing or two are in danger if the thing they need to know is thing three. And therefore, he may reach this halachic conclusion, thus the mitzvah of shofar is suspended. Of course, in our time, it's a bigger chiddush that we don't blow shofar on Shabbos because many, and I wonder if it's even true to say most, but certainly many uh, communities <coughs> where there are uh, from people, they have an Eruv, and they're carrying on Shabbos anyway. So it really is uh, the staying power of the original uh, enactment, and that itself is a tribute to the, to the power of of uh, Dinim de Rabbanon. So, be that as it may, this is the reason why we don't blow shofar on Shabbos, the rabbinic concern that a person may come to carry uh, in the Rishul Sarabim. And rabbi- many rabbinic restrictions do not apply in the Beis Hamikdash. That's why they would blow the shofar uh, in the Beis Hamikdash. So what's interesting is, if we can take stock, uh, so to speak, of what we've seen so far, <coughs> is that Initially, we thought that the, the notion of not blowing shofar and Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos is a product of reconciling conflicting psukim, Yom Trua versus Zichron Trua. But then we moved on from that to have a completely different understanding. It's a rabbinic enactment a person may come to carry. But what's fascinating is here is that the notion of Yom Trua and Zichron Trua referring to weekday and Shabbos respectively didn't entirely disappear. Because as we know, in our Machzor, 
When Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, we say, On the weekday, we call it Yom Teruah. And when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, as it does this year, <coughs> we say, So that distinction between Yom Teruah for Chol and Yom Zichron Teruah for Shabbos, it still remains, which is a very interesting situation, because the Gemara left it behind as the reason for distinguishing between Shabbos and weekday. But the Machsra seems to have kept it on, this distinction. But the Aruch HaShulchan explains that even as, in the end, the reason why we don't blow shofar is because of the rabbinic enactment, but it is supported, there is support for this, what's called an asmachta, an illusion of sorts, inspiration of sorts, a signal from the, from the posuk that it refers to sometimes a zikron tour and sometimes yom tour. That itself is not telling you not to blow the shofar. But if it, what it is telling you is you have the green light. Should you ever come to see that it is appropriate to suspend the blowing of the shofar uh, on Shabbos, so the Torah has already given an indication, a signal, as we say, of zikron tour. And that signal remains in the machsar. Yom Trua in the week, Zichron Trua on Shabbos. So this is the, the, the basic background to, to what we know as the Halacha, Rosh Hashanah on Shabbos, we don't blow shofar. <coughs> However, the Gemara, the, the Mishnah continues in fact. So the Mishnah said that <coughs> everywhere except for the Migdash, you don't blow. In the Migdash you would blow. But then it said, when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and of course the Sanhedrin moved ultimately to Yavne, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai <coughs> instituted that they blow the shofar in the Bezdin in Yavne. Zecher lemikdash. Zecher lemikdash. So we see there are themes within themes. In principle, no one blows except for the Beis HaMikdash. But if there's no Beis HaMikdash, so in Yavne where you have the Sanhedrin, they also, they continue to blow Zecher Lemikdash. And the Mishnah proceeds to cite the view of the rabbis that this is not only true for Yavne, it is true for wherever there is a Bezdin. One blows on Shabbos. Now, the question, of course, is what does Bezdin mean? We follow the opinion of the Chachamim. Wherever there is a Bezdin, one blows, when Rosh, even when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos. Define Bezdin. Well, most of the Rishonim explain that Bezdin means a Sanhedrin. So, so if it's not the Sanhedrin in, on the base of Migdash, but it is a Sanhedrin. And if that's the case, then we don't have that anymore. Because the Sanhedrin needs to have the unbroken chain of smicha uh, from Moshe Rabbeinu. That, because that was broken at a certain time, and we don't have a Sanhedrin anymore. So, so, so we don't have any access to this notion in our time. However, one opinion of the, among the Rishonim says that no. Bezdin does not mean Sanhedrin. This is the opinion of the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi, the great Rif from the ten hundreds in Morocco, Fez in Morocco, one of the pillars of Halacha. Says the Rif, Bezdin doesn't mean Sanhedrin. It means any Bezdin Choshev. Now define Bezdin Choshev. I think the only way to define Bezdin Choshev 
is to translate it into English, which would probably be a chosh of a bezdin. A bezdin which is significant. Okay, the central bezdin of the locale. Either way, the riff explains bezdin means bezdin choshev, and they still exist. And we should know that the riff acted on the basis of his opinion, and it is recorded that in the bezdin of the riff, when Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos, they would blow the shofar in the bezdin. No one concurred with the riff. No one was. Uh, agreed with him. In fact, even his own Talmidim, and he had great, great Talmidim, Rabbi Ephraim and others, um, sided with the majority position that it can only be Sanhedrin. So the riff remains just this one time, almost this uh, niche in history, outside the, the, the uh, Beis Hamikdash, outside Eretz Yisrael, where the shofar was blown when Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos in the Bezdin in Morocco. If you were there, You'd hear the shofar. But the matter was then laid to rest because no one continued that practice, no one agreed with it, and, and that was that. The only one who tried to resurrect this practice of blowing the shofar in front of a bezdin was approximately 900 years later, just a little bit less, in Yerushalayim. There was a certain individual, his name was Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, uh, he was a very colorful personality. His background was he was, a, he was from Hungary, a Talmud of the Ksav Sofer and the Maram Shik. But he came to live in Yerushalayim and he had very, very uh, strongly held views about many things. Among them, the importance of settling in Eretz Yisrael and the importance of Eretz Yisrael, which impacted many, many people. In fact, one of the people, I don't know if this is well known, who was profoundly impacted by Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger's works and words about the importance of, of uh, Eretz Yisrael was the Klausenberger Rebbe, who was well known uh, for many things. Sons <coughs> in Netanya, Kiryat, the, 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 the Lanyado Hospital, the whole thing. He, his views, and he, he told this to someone who asked him, why are you so, you're so fired up about uh, building up the land? Where did it come from? He took out a work of Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger. He says, he says, I read this, and it, uh, it changed everything. So Bikibios of Schlesinger was, was uh, <coughs> settled in Yerushalayim, and the years 1904 and 1905 were both two years successively where Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbos. And, and Rav Schlesinger was felt very, very strongly that to be deprived of the mitzvah of Shofar on two successive years, it was almost more than he could bear. And he began a campaign to sound the shofar under very significant, uh, strictured circumstances and parameters in Yerushalayim, based on two things. It could only happen in Yerushalayim. And here's why. Firstly, says Rabbi Kivyos of Schlesinger, I think there should be ample basis to rely on the riff. Everyone argued with him. Uh, the riff says if it's a Choshiva Bezdin, that's good enough. Everyone argued. But, but, but why are people not, more people should rely on the riff? And in fact, parenthetically, says Rav Schlesinger, one of, the, one of the primary proponents for the notion that we still have two days Rosh Hashanah, which of course everyone knows, again from time immemorial, it's, it's the riff. 
So when it comes to two days of Rosh Hashanah, everyone relies on the riff. Why not rely on him for the mitzvah of shofar? The answer, presumably, is it's not that simple, but that was the first point of contention. So the riff should be brought back. But there's a second point. Not only should we define Bezdin like the rift that a Bezdin Choshev and Yerushalayim had Choshev a Din in those days, as it does today. But there's a second point. They always sounded the, the shofar in the Mikdash. Where is the Mikdash? We began by translating the term Mikdash as Beis HaMikdash. And that indeed is how many Rishonim explain it, Rashi, Tosvas and others. However, the Rambam is famous in his commentary to the Mishnayas as explaining that the term Mikdash refers to the city of Yerushalayim. The difference between Mikdash and beyond is not Beis HaMikdash and beyond. It's Ir HaMikdash and beyond. It's Yerushalayim is the Mikdash. Specifically, of course, the old city and the old, old city. Uh, one needs to know its uh, borders, etc., However, therefore, says Rav Schlesinger, who lived in the old city of Yerushalayim, this is another reason why we should be able to sound the shofar, because according to the Rambam, we're in the Mikdash. And the Rambam, moreover, is of the opinion that the Kedusha of Yerushalayim uh, remains even until our time. Those were the two arguments of Rav Schlesinger. Again, to summarize, number one, rely on the riff, that Bezdin means Choshiva Bezdin, which we have. Number two, Mik, rely on the Rambam, that Mikdash means the old city of Yerushalayim, which is where he was. And his plan was, and he sent out correspondence to all of the greats of Gedol Yerushalayim to convene both the Sfardi Bezdin and the Ashkenazi Bezdin, and there was a central in Yerushalayim, Sfardi Bezdin, Ashkenazi Bezdin, and have them both together so that no one should say, oh, if the Sephardi Bezdin would say that would be different, or vice versa, to have them both together and to sound the shofar. Unfortunately, at least formally, that's as far as it got. In other words, no one was inclined to agree with him as much as they felt his uh, distress and, and uh, empathized with it and resonated with it. That there's no, there's no shofar, but that's the halacha, and they weren't prepared to rely on the riff in this regard and to rely on the uh, Rambam's definition of Mikdash, and therefore nothing formally came of it, and his invitation was turned down. And that apparently is the last that we heard of it. <clears throat> there was a rumor that circulated in Yerushalayim, and that is that he went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, gathering together whoever he felt could constitute a Bezdin. It's impossible, of course, to corroborate it. Certainly, I haven't heard anything about it lately. Uh, so this is 100 years ago. But uh, in any case, there's all sorts of discussions, that halakhic discussions that were generated by... The, if the rumor was true that he actually sounded the shofar on Shabbos, regardless of the fact that no one else thought that he should, the question is, would it be worthwhile to go and listen to it anyway, since... Someone's doing it, and would you fulfill the mitzvah, etc. These are very, uh, the, 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 the Yerushalmi discussions that were, that were generated by that uh, activity. Either way, so this is some of the background, but of course we know, <coughs> and uh, the halacha is that we suspend the mitzvah of shofar for the reasons that we said.
But Adkam, with regards to the halacha, there is a kind of a machshava, a thematic, I'd call it a silver lining. I don't know what else to call it, but it's from the Meshachachma in Parshas Emor. And Meshachachma says, as far as we know, or as far as we would describe it, the halachic position is, when Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, the Rabbanon suspended the Torah mitzvah, um, and, and that's how things stand. And therefore, we don't have it. But from a certain point of view, says Meshachachma, we do. How so? If we don't have it, how do we have it? The Gemara says in Masechus Rosh Hashanah that if the shofar doesn't sound at the beginning of the year, it could portend potentially for not good things, negative things as the year Comes to, comes to a close. Kol shona she'en tokim bad betchilasa. If there's no show from the beginning, mirin lo besofa. There could be alarms uh, sounded by the end. <clears throat> and what do we say? We say there's nothing we can do. Because the Rabbanan said, it's Shabbos, a person may come to carry. We forfeit this tool, which is called the mitzvah of shofar. And, and that's, and that's, that's all we can do about it. But the question is, says Meshachachma, on an inner level, what is, if we may ask, and the Gemara itself discusses this, what is so special about the mitzvah of Shofar? It's hard to pin it down to one thing, but one, one aspect which we know is highlighted is that it, it is reminiscent of the Akedah. As the Gemara says, Hashem says, Tiku shofar, blow the shofar, and I will remember for you Akedas Yitzhak. And of course, we want Hashem to remember Akedas Yitzhak for us. It's key for us. And that's what the shofar does. Well, if we may ask, what was so special about the Akedah? Why was it such an outstanding zuchus? The answer would seem to be obvious, but it's important to ask to formulate the answer. And that is what was so outstanding about the merit of the Akedah is that it was, in a sense, pure Mesiris Nefesh. Because Avram <coughs> was being told to do something which, which seems even wrong to bring Yitzhak up as, as a sacrifice, and what about Hashem's promise to him? It didn't make sense on any level, not reasonable, not religious. And what would people say if Avram actually went through with it? And what does Avram do? Avram says, I put all of that aside, seemingly the future of the Jewish people, but everything puts it all aside. If that's what Hashem has told me to do, he suspended any other... What, whatever will happen, will happen. But I proceed with, uh, with my mitzvah. And, and that is the basis of the merit of the Akedah, which continues to nourish and sustain us and support us until today. And we gain so much by, rem- by remembering it, by commemorating it. Well, then what happened? Along came the Chachamim and said, if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, then a person may come to carry. Shabbos Hayom Lashem. 
The shofar is for us, so to speak. The shofar is good for us. Aside from being a mitzvah, it, it, it bows well for us. It, it, it recalls the merit of the Akedah. That's good for us. But Shabbos is Hashem's day. And if there is even a chance that, that for purposes of fulfilling the mitzvah of shofar, for us, a person may come to even inadvertently violate the day of Shabbos, which is Hashem's day, it's suspended. What will happen? Whatever will happen, will happen. Says Meshachachma, when you think about it, by forfeiting the mitzvah of shofar, we are actually going through a similar process. On a, on, of course, on a more marginal level that Avram did when he performed the Akedah. In other words, Avram says, this could, I seem to be losing everything. But if Hashem said, and at the, if the, at the risk of violating Hashem's word, I'm prepared to, to lose whatever, whatever I need to lose. And that was the merit of the Akedah. Says the Meshachachma, on a normal year, when, when Rosh Hashanah falls during the week, we recall the Akedah by blowing the shofar. When Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbos, to a certain degree, in our own way, we emulate the Akedah by not blowing the shofar. Because we, we, we are forfeiting, seemingly, aside from the, the mitzvah aspect, we're forfeiting something that we need so, so severely, but not at the expense of Shabbos Hayom Lashem, whatever will happen will happen. And that itself is our own recalling of the Akedah, and that should, should see us uh, through the year and, and bode well for us to bring the Akedah with us through this halacha. So, both from the halachic point of view and from the uh, thematic point of view, certainly much to think about uh, on, the, on day one of Rosh Hashanah. I'd like to now move to discuss Rosh Hashanah itself in a way which I think will be um, very meaningful because there's something about Rosh Hashanah which can be quite surprising. Namely, it is the first of, they are the first two days of the Aseris Yemei Tshuva. Aseris Yemei Tshuva, ten days of Tshuva. Yet there is almost no mention of tshuva, and certainly no doing of tshuva, however tshuva is done, on Rosh Hashanah. Instead, there are all sorts of other things that we speak about, important things, central things, no doubt, but not much said about tshuva. And the machzor is very thick. And last I checked, they're only getting thicker. But there isn't really much tshuva there. There's all sorts of other things. So how do we reconcile the idea of two days, the first two days of the days of tshuva, but there, but there isn't really tshuva there? And then the follow-up question is, is, how does this go together with Yom Kippur? I mean, the, clearly Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are working together, either as the beginning and end of a process, or somehow as partners in something that, that is happening. And based on the writings of, of the great Rebbe Minsberg, what emerges is as follows. And we'll begin in the most basic way. What is a mitzvah? What does a mitzvah contain? 
In truth, a mitzvah contains two things. Firstly, <coughs> it's the command, responding to the command of Hashem, which is really a relationship of, of commander to subject, of king to servant. That's a mitzvah, a commandment. <coughs> In addition to that, because what we should appreciate to isolate the idea of the command itself, it actually doesn't even make a difference what the command is. The very notion that you are responding to, by, to being told by the king to do something is its own value, and we haven't even opened up the box of what are you being told to do. That's the second element within a mitzvah, the nature of the act, the spiritually beneficial nature of the act, to the extent that if one could only know what mitzvahs are, there would be room to say that one should do them even if one isn't told to, because if you're spiritually sensitive, you wish to d develop yourself spiritually. And this is the notion of uh, the Avos, the well-known tradition that the Avos kept the mitzvahs even before they were commanded. If they weren't commanded, so what is there? What is there? What there is, <coughs> is the an awareness, a recognition of the spiritual benefit of this act. Once the Torah is given, we have both. They are both commands on the one hand, which is a relationship between us and Hashem, and they are spiritual benefit, beneficial acts. And thus we say in the brachas, when we make a bracha on the mitzvah, we mention these two elements, says the Vilna Gon. We say, Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvosah, Hashem sanctified us with the mitzvahs. In other words, we're recognizing that the nature of the mitzvah is that it sanctifies the person. And secondly, vetsivanu, and commanded us, which is our relationship with Hashem as king and subject. Those are the two themes that live side by side within mitzvahs. <coughs> Correspondingly, or conversely, if a person would do something that the Torah says not to do, if they would violate a, <coughs> a prohibition of the Torah, there are, again, two elements in that wrongdoing. Firstly, <coughs> they damage themselves. There's a reason why this uh, is forbidden. It may have some short-term payoff, but the enduring spiritual effect is, is negative is damaging. So that's the first thing, spiritual damage. And secondly, again, having violated the command of the Torah, that's a relationship issue between them and Hashem as subjects to kings. And the upshot of this, when, when, the more we appreciate the duality within each mitzvah and, with, and within each Avera, is that when a person comes to do tshuva, they really need to address two separate things. Firstly, they need to address the violation of the command as, as, as a wrongdoing, that, that, that the fact that they were told not to do something and they did it anyway, regardless of what that thing was. That's between them and the king. And secondly, they need to try to somehow seek to repair any spiritual damage that they've caused themselves. The two things that, that are wrong with an Aveira that one seeks to make right through tshuva, pardon and rehabilitation. 
That's the duality that then now runs within Shuvah. And indeed, Rabbi Yeshua Heller, one of the great uh, literature uh, Gedolim of the 1800s, Rabbi Yeshua Heller says that these are the two concepts that we call Mechila and Slicha. We always say Slicha and Mechila. Slicha and Mechila. <coughs> what is the difference in connotation between these terms? Mechila, says Rabbi Shua Heller, refers to repairing. The, it's, it's literally a pardon. Mechila is pardon. But you, you're pardoned for disobeying. That's between you and the king. It doesn't even make a difference in that respect what it was that a person did. The fact that they disobeyed is a, is a rupture, is a frustration of, of how things should be between them and their king. And for that, they need pardon. That's called mechila. <coughs> but what slicha is, what we, we, we translate it as forgiveness. Again, we, we, we we're using as best we can the English language, but it doesn't do justice to what's happening because the, con- the specific connotation of slicha is the, re- is the reparation, the rehabilitation, the restoration of the person and trying to, to uh, fix and mend and heal whatever spiritual damage was, in, was in, incurred. And it's for this reason, says Rabbi Shua Heller, and we know, of course, as is often the case, as is always the case, in fact, that even when we have special days, and special days are centered around a theme, it's not that this theme is only relevant once a year. It's relevant every day, but once a year it pulsates. It's relevant throughout the year, but for once a year it becomes the focus it becomes the highlight. So on Pesach, for example, where we, we celebrate our freedom we, and we celebrate the exodus from Egypt, it's something that we mention every day. It's important to remember it every day, but it pulsates once a year on Pesach. And Lahavdil, Tisha B'Av, you can't spend the whole year in Tisha B'Av mode. But the themes of Tisha B'Av exist the whole year. They're relevant, but they pulsate once a year until further notice. And the same thing is true when it comes to kapara, which is, of course, the, the seasonal focus, so to speak, in the Yomim Naroim, but it's an issue we talk about every day, three times a day, in the Shmonasri, Slach Lanu Avinu, and Machala Namakenu. And what do we say? We ask for those two things and, and, and to, to open up just the precision of the phraseology of that blessing in Shmanasri of Slicha, once again, you see the duality within what we're trying to do. Because we first ask for Slicha, Slach lano avinu, and then Mechal lano makenu. And it's interesting that when we ask for Slicha, we refer to Hashem as Avinu, Slach lano avinu. When we ask for Mechila, we call him Malkenu, Mechal lano makenu. Why is that? Because slicha, as we've seen, is, is, is the healing. It's the, it's the rehabilitation. So as one who cares for us, we're asking Hashem to, to fix us up, avinu. The mechila issue is much more between us and the king. And that's why we say mechalano malkenu. And moreover, we say just to... Just to, to Finish up the triumvirate of the of each verse. We say, as we know, slachlanu avinu. We ask Hashem to fix us up. Ki chatanu. We mention chatanu 
when it comes to slicha. Mechala lemakeinu ki pashanu. So why does the first request end with chatanu and the second end with pashanu? But as we know, a chait is within the hierarchy or within the, the, the other similar terms, a chait reflects something that was unintentional. A chait is a shogeik. A pesha, on the other hand, is willful, is willful disobedience. So, so once we understand the different uh, connotation of asking for slicha rehabilitation and mechila pardon, that's why in the first we highlight chait, because for chait, we don't. We if we if it's unintentional, we didn't mean anything bad by it. So the critical issue is less the relationship between disobeying the king. I, I didn't intend to disobey. Of course, you could always have been more careful, etc. and so forth. But the focus is on the damage that is done by even an unintentional sin nonetheless. And that's why, in terms of repairing the damage, slicha from the father, we emphasize chatanu. Of course, conversely, when it comes to the uh, mechila, which is the pardon from the king, the term that we choose is pesha, because pesha really is that merit. It's really that rebelling and that willful side of things. And there, the critical focus is on the requirement of mechila. So we see how these two requests line up, uh, and it's it's always worthwhile to get a deeper insight into the into the nuances of the tefillah. And that's true the whole year round. But let us now come to what we are loosely calling the season of tshuva. And Yomim Laroim, the highlights are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, says Rev Minsberg. Once we realize that there's two issues in tshuva, fixing the subject to king merit relationship, and then cleansing ourselves of the harmful effects of, of, of Averus, we'll see how each one divides between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, respectively. What is the focus of Rosh Hashanah? What is the refrain of Rosh Hashanah? What is the word, the motif that runs through the entire day, as we know, is the concept of Malchios. And what are we doing by affirming and reaffirming and proclaiming and accepting and absorbing and 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 all of that is really addressing the first area of wrongdoing. Namely, and again, we don't formally yet ask for mechila, but this is our first and, and significant overture towards repairing our relationship with, him as, with Hashem as subjects to a king. We spend two days devoted almost exclusively and certainly primarily to proclaiming Hashem's kingship. And what is the benefit of that? Aside from all the other benefits, it is a critical move in the restoration of our subject-to-king relationship, which is the first area of, of tshuva. And then, when we come to Yom Kippur, so Yom Kippur is the concepts of kapara and tara, ki Atonement and kapara means more than atonement, it means to wipe away, to remove, Really, what, what, what the slicha, vayom Hashem salachti kedvarecha, all of these things, and tahara, these are changing the, the spiritual fabric 
of the Jewish people, restoring them. And that is the second element of what tshuva is. So in other words, if we take a broad view, a broad vision of these 10 days as a team, that is to say, the two pillars of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the beginning and end of these days, working as a team, so to speak, so they really address these two areas. And what's interesting is that uh, because Rosh Hashanah is about the, the pardon aspect, that's where the focus is on Melech. But when it comes to Yom Kippur, which is more about the rehabilitation aspect, about the cleansing aspect, the purification aspect, the focus shifts to, to Hashem as Father. Slach lanu avinu. We're mindful of Rabbi Akiva's famous uh, statement at the end of Maseches Yuma, the Masechta that deals with Yom Kippurim. And what does Rabbi Akiva say? Ashrechem Yisrael. Happy are you, Israel, before whom do you purify yourselves? And who purifies you? Your Father in Heaven. That term, and there's so many different ways to refer to Hashem, but the reason why Rabbi Akiva says is because on Yom Kippur, that is what's being highlighted. And What's interesting is, and as is so often the case, it's not a binary thing. It's not that Rosh Hashanah is just Malchus, Malchus only, and Yom Kippur is Av only, fatherhood only. Not so. It's more blended than that. Because even on Rosh Hashanah, there's an element of, as much as it's primarily kingship, but there's also an, an admixture, so to speak, of Hashem as Father, we say, interestingly, as much as Rosh Hashanah is kingship and then Yom Kippur is, is, is Hashem as Father, of course we appeal to Hashem as Avinu Malkeinu. And we put Avinu before Malkeinu. Uh, we can only try. I, th- I think that's, that's better for us if it's Avinu Malkeinu versus Malkeinu Avinu, even though uh, Rosh Hashanah deals with the, the business side of, of Malchus first. But there is an element of Avinu. We say Avinu Makeinu and Rosh Hashanah. We, we call Hashem both. And Malchus persists. Malchus, which is the dominant Rosh Hashanah theme, persists even into Yom Kippur. It doesn't end with Rosh Hashanah. As we know, if a person would say Hakel HaKadosh instead of Hamelech HaKadosh on Rosh Hashanah, he's, he's got to go back. And on Yom Kippur, he also has to go back. In other words, the, the, the basic aspect of Malchus is as critical on Yom Kippur as it is on Rosh Hashanah. But nonetheless, there is an, the, the, the issue is one of emphasis. And I think this is a very um, helpful and meaningful way to, to relate to the, the harmony of, the, of these two days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that how they work together, and each one what its role is. Because the last thing a person wants is to have paid good money for their machser and be all ready to do tshuva and then get uh, taken aback by the fact that there is none to be found in the Rosh Hashanah machser and that you're already there in shul and however long shul is, you're saying other things. And, we, and to understand how the machser is working for us is, uh, is certainly of the essence. And I'd like to conclude by offering another perspective. As we see, it will begin 
with one line of the Rosh Hashanah Musaf, but in the end it pervades, I believe, the entirety of Rosh Hashanah. The middle bracha, as we know, Musaf and Rosh Hashanah is unique in that every other Musaf in the year has first three brachas, last three brachas, and one bracha in the middle. It's true for Musaf of Shabbos, Yom Tov, Yom Kippur, every Yom Tov. The exception is Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah has three middle blessings, giving a total of nine. And those middle blessings, of course, are Malchios, kingship, Zichronos, remembrance, and Shofars. And I'd like to focus on the middle. And the middle bracha of Zichronos begins by proclaiming You, Hashem, remember everything. Everything that ever happened and the effect of everything that ever happened. Okay, that's how we begin. And how do we end? We end, if we, if we, if we move all the way to the end, of course, missing out all of the psukim in, in the middle, all the way to the end, we, we say, Va'akedas Yitzchak lezaro hayom barachamim tizkor. Remember the Akeda of Yitzchak for his descendants with mercy today. That is how Zichronos concludes. Some have the girsa, Akedas Yitzchak lezaro shal Yisrael, Yitzhak's, the Akeda of Yitzhak for the descendants of Yisrael, to, to explicitly sideline Esau or any other descendants of Yitzhak. Others feel it's not necessary. Yaakov is really the only meaningful descendant of, uh, of Yitzhak, so we just say his descendants. Either way, and that's the mainstream Ashkenazi uh, Nusach. But it's very interesting to ponder. I think that the best way to describe the Brach of Zechronos is that it has an extremely wide angle in the sense that it begins by talking about Hashem remembering everything. Now, obviously, being human, we don't want Hashem to remember everything. We'd like him to remember some things, and if possible, of course it's impossible, but we would like it to happen nevertheless, to forget other things. So he should remember the good. If you start with everything, just delete the, good, delete, delete the bad, and what are you left with? All the good things. Why do we ask Hashem at the end to remember the Akeda of Yitzhak for his descendants? With what in mind? Presumably, this represents the classic Zuchus Avos, which, which we spoke about before. Merits of the fathers. Merits don't get bigger than the Akeda, and we need all the help we can get, and therefore we mention, okay, remember the Akeda as Zuchus Avos. But there's just one simple problem, and that is, who told you that, that you have to restrict your request for Hashem to remember what, just one thing? Don't forget, we began with Hashem remembering everything. And then we conclude by asking him to remember one thing, which is actually almost everything minus one thing. It gets, gets dropped. But who told you that, that you need to travel so light? Why not ask Hashem to remember the merits of all the fathers? Again, we're beginning with a pool of every single thing. You just need to delete all the negative, keep all the positive. If we need all the help we can get, why don't we ask for all the help that we can? Avram had ten tests. The Akedah was, was among the hardest, if not the hardest. But why ignore the others? And Yitzchak had other merits. And no one even mentioned Yaakov. He had merits. 
And that is, is a very interesting question. We seem perhaps to be overly confident that we shouldn't, we don't want to overdo it. And one merit should be enough when we choose the Akedah. Who told you to limit yourself? Bring everything in, whatever you can. That's the Shaina. And that is why I think that part of what we're doing when we ask Hashem to remember the Akedah is not just in the interests of Zuchus Avos, merits of the fathers. I think something else is happening here. There is a principle. It's, it's well known really in later generations. It's, it's discussed much more uh, extensively in, in many different settings, but it really is from the Gemara. It is about the essential will, the inner, inner will of the Jewish people. And that is that it's aligned with the will of Hashem. There could be many, many layers in between that inner will and what the person actually does. Maybe. But that inner core is, is aligned and, and resonates with and is in tune with Ratzon Hashem. It doesn't always carry the vote. It doesn't always have the last word. But it's always there. And this was expressed in the Gemara. Rav Alexandri, after his Shmona Yisrei, after Hamavarich Es Amo Yisrael Bashalom, where we say Elokai Nitzor, which is a later, from later in the Gemara, and there are other things that other rabbis in the Gemara would say, one of which, which was Rav Alexandri. He would say, Ribon Kololame, master of the world, Galui Viadu Lefanecha, Sheritzoneinu Lasis Ritzonecha. You know, it is revealed and known before you that our will is to do your will. Now, of course, you may ask, so let's see you. Why doesn't it look like that? Who gets in the way? Things get in the way. Gate Sahara, the societal, environmental influences. But, but, the, but the core is there. And the Rambam famously uses this idea to explain the halacha. There are some areas of halacha where we need the person's consent. He needs to want to do it. And if he doesn't want to do it, so what do we do? We coerce him until he says he wants to do it, which doesn't really sound like he wants to do it. It really sounds like what he wants is for you to stop coercing him. But the Rambam says the way this works is because he really does want to do it. But other things are confusing him, getting in the way. So when you apply coercion, and again, obviously, we're told not to try this at home, but the principle is when, when, they, when he's coerced, that deals with all of those elements in between. And is, when he says he wants, it's really true. That's the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah, which is, which is a halacha sefer. And it, it's coming to explain halachas. And there has halachic ramifications. And so from the Gemara and for the Rambam and many, many other places, you have this central idea that a Jew at heart, in his heart of hearts, and maybe sometimes in its heart of heart of hearts, wants to do the right thing. Doesn't always get heard, but it's always there. When did this begin? When did this begin? The Meshachachma in Parshas Vayera, 
explains that at the time of the Akedah, there was such a, a high intensity of absolute nullification of, of, of Yitzchak's existence and with, with Avram's participation to do Hashem's will, this embedded within the Jewish people the idea that from this point onwards, their essential will is to, is to follow Hashem's will. They're not on the level of Avram and Yitzchak. It doesn't always carry the day, as we said, but it's always there. So if we say this is the essential nature of the Jew, when did this nature, what event can it be traced back to? The answer is the Akedah. I think it's fair to say that on Rosh Hashanah, it's hard to know really how to deal with a year's worth of activity in one day. Where does one start? Uh, it could be that one ultimately would, would make require more than a year to deal with a year's worth of, of activity properly, etc. So clearly, what, what can one do in one day? It doesn't absolve one of the work ultimately that needs to be done. But in terms of a fundamental step to, to vouchsafe a positive outcome for Rosh Hashanah, the one thing you can do is to know how to define yourself. Because if you define yourself in accordance with that inner core, which was, which was given to us by Yitzchak, and, and remains the inner core of the, of the Jew, it doesn't make your wrongdoings disappear. And it doesn't increase your good deeds. But it changes the way all of them are looked at. Because as we know, the, the real weight of a deed is when the person is behind it, when the person stands by it, when it represents the person. Sometimes we do things, but they don't represent us for various other reasons, confusion, so on and so forth, foolishness, vanity, whatever it may be. But the, but the, the deeds that carry the real weight are the deeds that we stand behind and identify with. And so... What better can we do for ourselves in Rosh Hashanah than we say, the good things that I did, I identify with because I am identifying with the way that, I, that I'm defined in the innermost way. And I, I disassociate myself. Again, I do not absolve myself of responsibility, but I fund, as, as a question of identity, I disassociate myself from all the things that I did wrong. I'm not saying I didn't do them. I have to deal with them, but they don't define me. They don't represent me and they don't become me. And such a person can emerge with a very, very positive way of assessing how they have been throughout the year. Their good deeds now attain maximum weight. Their wrongdoings do not disappear, but they are significantly deflated. And that's, that is one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. And how do we do that? Or what are we, do, what, what are we requesting from Hashem? That is why... In the end of Zichronos, we say, remember the Akedah. When we ask Hashem to remember the Akedah of Yitzhak for his descendants, we're not saying it's a good deed and we're his grandchildren, so if we could cash in on the merit of that good deed, which is on a very sim oversimplified level what, what Schus Avos is. But if we're cashing in on Schus Avos, we wouldn't limit it to one deed. But I don't think it's Schus Avos here. And since then, I've seen others who say this also, so I'm happy to be in, in a good uh, rabbinic company. 
It's not in the interest of, of, of arousing the merits of, of our ancestors. It's in arousing an awareness of how to define ourselves. Because that changes the way everything we've done over the last year is to be looked. Remember the Akedas Yitzchak for what it says about who we are and judge everything we've done accordingly. The good things that we did, we're proud to have done them because that's us on an absolute level. The bad things that we did, not proud to have done them. We'd like to get rid of them and we hope to do so in the days that follow. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good picture. That's an optimistic picture. Of course, what, what, do we, what do we hope to do by reminding Hashem of who we are? If Hashem never forgets, then the notion of Hashem remembering is only Him responding to the extent that we, that we remember. That's the irony of Zechronos. What we call remembrance, Hashem remembering, is only ever a reflection of the, of the extent to which we remember. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Zikaron. The more we remember and the more we, we move in that direction and identify in that way, so the more Hashem will then naturally come to remember. We do not wish to remind Him without, without trying to remind ourselves. And I think this also gives us insight as to why we spend so much of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah davening for the things that we do. We don't daven so much for ourselves, not really. We daven for the world. As if we don't have a care in the world, right? We daven for the world. The, everyone should follow Hashem's will. The Jewish people should have honor, which it so sorely lacks. Tzaddikim should have, uh, should have honor, etc. Et Why are we praying for all those things? Because a person is defined by what they want. And therefore, the prayers are given to us in Rosh Hashanah for, a world, for God's world, for God's world to look the way that it should. And if we get behind those prayers, and if we resonate with them, if we identify with them, there is no better way to identify ourselves as being in alignment with, with, with God's will than to identify with prayers for a world which, where, where God's will is, 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 is manifest and revealed. So I think, again, this gives us another point of connection, another line through which to establish attachment to the prayers. We spend, we spend so much time in Rosh Hashanah. We want the world to look good. We want the world to be rectified through, through the kingship of Hashem. If you want that, it says a lot about you because you know you can, do, you can find a person by what it is that they want. And so we should make good use, all bizocha, to make a, a maximum uh, use of the of the time that we have in shul on these very very special days of, of Rosh Hashanah, just uh, just a few days away. Hashem should hear our prayers. We should hear our prayers. That is to say, we should hear what we're saying and identify to the extent that we can, as much as we can, with them. Hashem oribe Rosh Hashanah to see ourselves in Hashem's light on Rosh Hashanah. And the more we identify that way, the more we remember. The more Hashem should remember us. He should remember us for good us as individuals, us as communities, us as the Jewish people, we should usher in a year which is only full of Besorahs Tovos, Yeshuas, Venachamas, Ksiva Chasiva Tova, and all the best.